Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. This week we're going to be talking about Italy and trying to make sense of the referendum at the weekend, which has resulted in the resignation of the Italian Prime Minister Matteo Renzi and a whole new wave of speculation, some of which we indulged in in previous podcasts about what this might mean for the future of the euro and the new populist wave that's sweeping Europe. I'm joined by Helen Thompson, Maha Raffiatal, and I'm delighted to say we're also joined by Chris Bickerton, who's written widely about Italian politics and also about the new populism. Um, and his book, The EU, A Citizen's Guide, was a very influential publication just before the Brexit referendum. Chris, I'm going to start with you just to try and make sense. I'm sure I'm not alone here in wanting a little bit of help in making sense of Italian politics and how particularly how Renzi got himself into a situation where his entire political career was staked on the outcome of a referendum. It's easy to say with hindsight, but it was always going to be likely that he would struggle because he also made it a referendum on his government. So how did he, how did he get boxed in like this? How did he wind up staking everything on this vote? It does seem a very rash thing to do. And people describe it as a strategic mistake, uh, as a tactical error. I don't think it really was. I think it tells us something about the kind of politician that Renzi is and has been uh, ever since he rose to prominence in Italy. In many ways, for Renzi, politics has always been about himself. Um, His political message has always been about himself. And some of this is, you know, it's very personal. It's his his youth, his charisma, his energy. He's always committed himself to being able to do things, to honour his promises, this ability to do very difficult things, to have more energy than anyone else. There's a term in Italy, fare, to do, and he's transformed it into a kind of ideology. Doing is what matters for, for Renzi, acting. He's put himself at the heart of his, uh, his political message. I don't think it was even necessarily a matter of tactics or strategy. It just simply is the way Renzi does politics. So that makes it sound like another recent referendum, the one in this country and David Cameron, not because Cameron is that kind of doer, but simply there was something hubristic about this, that he had come to believe his own publicity. I mean, Cameron, I think, came to believe that he could always get out of the scrapes he got himself into until the one that he couldn't. So is it the same with Renzi? In a sense, this was hubris. This was a politician who thought if he put his personal charisma behind a cause, he could carry it over the line. Yes, I think he is that kind of politician. There is an incredible irony about this referendum, which is that Renzi was seen as this anti-establishment figure when he first came to power. Um, he took over the, the centre-left party in Italy, the Democratic Party, with a famous slogan that we must junk the traditional political leaders. And there are some amazing scenes. I mean, if we go back to, to 2013, 2014, where he became a national politician. There's one video which I would recommend everybody to watch, which was an Italian talent show called Amici. And this was on one of Silvio Berlusconi's channels. And Renzi is on there speaking for three or four minutes in a black bomber jacket to young people, telling them about how they can change Italy. They can believe in themselves. There's an Italian dream. These are the kind of things that he was saying. Now, if you go back to that moment then, people did believe him, especially young people. There's a huge amount of hope invested in Renzi. Now, the great irony is that if you look at the data for the referendum, the very people that rejected him overwhelmingly were the 18 to 34-year-olds by the order of 80 to 20. And what was the constitutional issue that was at stake here? So he wanted reform essentially to streamline Italian politics to make executive action easier. 
why did it become such a divisive issue? I suppose this was where maybe some element of tactics or strategy would would come into it. There were a lot of people out to get Renzi, we have to remember that, from the old guard, the old sort of political establishment, and many of those lined up on the no side. But the reason why I think it was credible for them to do so was that there was something at the heart of the reforms that suggested the desire by Renzi who'd always personalised power exactly in the way that Berlusconi did, wanted to really institutionalise that by strengthening the executive. Um, and that was the, the criticism, particularly on the old left, which was a very serious and, I think, justified criticism of the reforms. Now, when he made it about himself, he then lined up everybody else who might disagree with the last few years, especially those people who feel as if Italy hasn't, hasn't been going anywhere economically. And that then became a pretty large number of people uh, who rejected him in the, in the referendum. And so was the referendum itself a kind of last resort for him? I mean, he presumably, as I understand it, he tried to get these reforms through Parliament and failed. So it is the tactic of last resort for politicians to appeal to the people. Was he boxed in by this point? He hadn't been in power for that long to stake everything on this. But was it because he felt he'd run out of options? He's always thought of himself as somebody who has a project to change Italy. And his... His arrogance is always something that put people off, but it's also something that did inspire people, is that they thought, here is somebody who really can do this. And I think he grossly underestimated his unpopularity. If his mandate, if his you know, uh, two years or so in power were to be put to, to a vote. So I think he was forced to get these changes through by referendum, but it didn't occur to him that it would be so difficult to win. I mean, there are lots of complications. I mean, this is tied up also with an attempt to reform the electoral law in Italy. Now, that's been passed, but has been considered possibly unconstitutional, and so the constitutional court has to decide, and they deferred that decision until until the beginning of next year. And this is the law that essentially requires that there should be a majority in Parliament, regardless of how big the margin of victory is in the electoral vote. Exactly. exactly. It's a law that has a sort of a a two-round system to push one party to get enough votes so that they get this sort of bonus in terms of seats, which pushes them to 55%. And, And it's the same principle in order to allow things to be done to prevent the Italian system from clogging up politics. That's right. And so, I mean, there are lots of complications about whether the referendum was to go, was to be supported or not. You'd then have possibly two different electoral laws applying to two different chambers within Italy. So there are a number of unsettled issues now, and it's unlikely that Italy would go to early elections without some clarity on the electoral law. So we're going to come back in a second to talk about what this says about the new populism, because clearly in this case it's complicated and There's even a question about whether Renzi was the populist or the anti-populist in this vote. Last night, I caught up with Mariana Mazzucato, the economist, Italian-American economist, a very prominent public intellectual in this country and also around the world. She was in Cambridge giving a lecture about growth. There was a dinner afterwards, so there's a bit of background noise here, lots of excited students shouting. But I hope you can hear her reasonably clearly because she's got an interesting take on this. I asked her whether she thought that you could fit the Italian referendum into this wider narrative of the populist rejection of the establishment, given some of the reasons we've just been hearing about from Chris. It's quite complicated, the range of people who actually wound up voting no. Well, first of all, I don't think it was populist in the sense that literally many people who voted no actually voted no based on the contents of that referendum. It wasn't a reaction to inequality, for example, or people feeling dispossessed. So many people thought that it would put too much power to the executive, 
currently in Italy you have a perfect bicameralism, which is a problem because the laws just keep going, you know, bouncing back and forth like a ping pong table. That is a problem, but the actual form how he structured it was seen as being very sloppy, and so they voted literally on that referendum. Other people voted against Renzi because he very stupidly said, "I will resign." So then the real question is, why were people so unhappy with Renzi? I then asked her, how did Renzi get it so wrong? If you're going to have a vote like this under these conditions, wasn't it always that he was going to lose? It was a foolish mistake on his part. But the real issue is this, I think, that for the last 20 years, Italy has not really grown. Zero productivity growth. And that's actually due to the lack of investments, both by the public sector, but also the private sector. Very inertial private sector. And Renzi had 1,000 days <laughs> to change things, and he didn't. It's very interesting that the first thing he did was attack labor unions. He said Article 18 and the labor you know, constitution is a problematic. If you have more than 15 workers, you are impeded from growing because you can't fire people. And he forgot to look at statistics. So the average Italian firm has four workers. It was not the case that they had 13 or 14 and they weren't growing because all hell would break loose when they you know, hired the 15th. So the real crisis in Italy has also been that there hasn't been that proper ecosystem which would allow all these small, tiny, tiny firms to grow. And he just blamed regulation. So he did a whole reform of public administration. It was just cutting. And then he tried to fool around a bit with tax policy and this labor market issue. So this notion that it was just rigidities versus a lack of investment was a huge mistake on his part. And he even had a program called El Programa de la Buena Scuola, Good School, so education policy, which in the end was a net investment of zero. He just moved things around. So he got the reputation of just being this magician who would, you know, talk the good talk, but then magically move things around so nothing would happen, basically. And that's what many of my intellectual friends voted against. So then I was curious to find out what she thought the implications of that were, that the intellectuals were lined up not on one side and the people on the other, that this doesn't fit that populist pattern. What does it mean that actually the intellectuals and the people were in a sense on the same side here? The populist part does exist, but it wasn't huge. And the populist part is very dangerous because it's what's behind the Movimento delle Cinque Stelle, Beppe Grillo's five-star party which is extremely dangerous because it has always presented itself as sort of, you know, anarchistic, like we're against this, we're against that. And it's unfortunate that many young, disillusioned, you know, individuals, you know, young students, for example, have seen in the five-star movement something that they didn't see in the Democratic Party, and they've gone to it but haven't realized that the leader really is extremely undemocratic and dangerous. So what do you think is going to happen next? Well, what, what always happens in the European Union, that it's going to be a big crisis, a big theater, and then in three months' time, there'll be a bandage <laughs> and everything will be fine. But the actual sickness, which is that the competitiveness levels in Europe are getting worse and worse. And because we don't have any you know, economic plans in these countries that are increasing competitiveness, you can't have a monetary union with countries so different from each other. And yet with the fiscal compact, this 3% you know, uh, uh, criteria or zero, everyone wants to run a surplus, you won't be able to get the levels of investment you need for Italy to catch up. Of course, it's not just about throwing public money at anything, but you, know, you, you need to reform the institutions. Of course, there's different types of also rigidities that one needs to reform, but 
the levels of investment that Italy requires to catch up to you know, competitiveness of Germany is currently not permitted with the rules. So, Chris, to come back to some of the things that Mariana was just saying there, as she said, her intellectual friends voted no. Uh, we were talking about this last week. The Economist advocated a no vote. It's very hard to fit this into a conventional people versus the establishment narrative. So with Renzi himself, is it plausible to think of him as the populist here? And actually, in a way, it was the establishment, along with very disgruntled voters who were pushing back against him. Is it almost the opposite from the narrative we're used to with Brexit and Trump? So I think we can situate the results of this referendum in what, I mean, the Chinese have a good term for it, they call it the Great Revolt in some sort of upswell of anti-establishment feeling across the, the world of advanced democracies. I think we can. People voted against Renzi in full knowledge that the leading voices in the No campaign, alongside some of these intellectuals and former politicians, who I don't think were the leading voices, the leading voices were the Northern League, led by, by Matteo Salvini, and the Five Star Movement, led by, by Beppe Grillo. Uh, they were the, the people pushing for the No, and people voted knowing that that was part of of what they were doing. So it's part of this bigger picture, there's no doubt. Renzi himself, however, does play quite a complicated role in this. I've always argued that Renzi was basically the Berlusconi of the left. And there was a lot of calls for this kind of political figure from the left for some time. And then Renzi was it, they got what they wanted. And he had this, as I said before, this anti-establishment side to him. He was challenging the original political apparatus with, I think, a very personal relationship to the Italian people. And if you remember what uh, Berlusconi did in 2001 before national elections, he signed live on TV a contract with the Italian people saying, I will do all of these things uh, for you. Now, Renzi did something very similar. He said, I have four principles of reform. I'm going to do them. This is my contract with you as a person. This is all very individual. So in that sense, he had this, this populist side to him. But I think in the context of this referendum, people had very quickly put him in the box of he doesn't do anything more than anyone else has done. He's like the others. He's part of this political caster, as the Five Star Movement call it. And that's why they mobilise so successfully against him. So, Helen, is it plausible that he's actually part of the the counterwave to the Great Revolt, because one of the expectations, and for some people the hope, is when populists get into power and they fail to deliver on their promises, just like all politicians fail to deliver on their promises, there'll be a reaction against them. So in a sense, he's closer to a pattern that includes people like Syriza, which is that everyone who comes into power makes promises, and when populists fail to deliver, the backlash is probably quicker and even harder. I think there's something in that, but I think you have to put what's happened in Italy, including Renzi's position in the context of the European Union and the Eurozone crisis in particular. And in in this respect, Renzi lined himself up as a very pro-Euro politician. He wanted to reform the Italian economy to make it compatible, essentially, with Eurozone membership, which is not at the moment, which is why Italian GDP per capita is now lower than it was when Italy entered the Eurozone. I think what's striking about the moves he's made over the last year is the way that he started himself to try to mobilise at least anti-Brussels and to some extent anti-German feeling in Italy, is, is that it became much more critical about the constraints that the Eurozone puts on Italy's economic policy, much more willing to attack the Commission about the budget deficit requirements that the Commission puts on Italy, but that ultimately he was not able to exploit that shift that he made because he is not seen, it seems, by sufficient numbers of the Italian electorate who are 
anti-euro and that's not as big a proportion as you might think as somebody who's got any kind of significant eurosceptic credentials and, and the northern league the five-star movement they are absolutely riding this anti-european wave right chris i mean that is a big part of their appeal it is the, the northern league is probably clearer than the five-star movement is the northern league for a long time has been an anti-euro party Anti-Euro, but not anti-Europe, or anti-Europe as well? Well, so in the case of the Northern League, anti-Euro, the position on the EU as a whole is always a bit more ambivalent, but Salvini has basically lined himself up with Marine Le Pen and Geert Wilders in the Netherlands, and also some uh, Flemish nationalists as well, and they've created a kind of a hardcore block for what they describe as a Europe of nations. So they have a vision of Europe, and it just doesn't include the European Union at all. The Five Star Movement is a bit more ambivalent. Grillo has spent a lot of time talking about the return of monetary sovereignty to Italy, and he's very critical of the Euro. He's committed his movement to a referendum on Euro membership were they to get into power, but they haven't taken a position on what they would actually argue in that referendum. Uh, but basically, Grillo and, and Salvini are, you know, Italy is a country that was profoundly pro-European for so long, and they are clearly the voices of a very different view of, uh, of the European Union. I guess coming at this from very much the outside in terms of not particularly studying European politics, but studying a lot of developing countries that went through economic reforms in the 80s and 90s that are very similar to what Greece, Italy, some of the countries on the European periphery are being asked to do, there's precedent here in terms of whatever Renzi's goal in having these constitutional reforms is. When you're asking for constitutional reforms that will make executive action easier at a time when the executive is in the position of having to put through a series of economic reforms that are deeply unpopular to sustain a euro project that is deeply unpopular, it's not shocking to me that you would lose. And there is, you know, a history of sort of populist uprisings against kind of technocratic leadership in sub-Saharan Africa and Latin America whenever these countries have gone through this kind of structural adjustment process. So it isn't surprising to me that this would end up being wrapped up with the euro, even if these aren't a set of reforms that particularly have anything to do with the euro. And Chris, you've written about this a lot in the past. And what Maha said there touches on it, which is Renzi is plausibly a kind of populist, but he's also plausibly a kind of technocrat. And people often think these things are opposed, but really they're often not. They often go together. And the other person he was described as was Italy's Blair, right? And that whole what works philosophy, it's part of the Blairism. It's like when we're post-ideological, we're technocrats, we do what delivers. So he's, he's that as well. He, he's, he's the populist technocrat or the technocrat populist. Yes, I think it doesn't really matter which way round you put it. Um, Neither is particularly beautiful no, as a label. There's no elegant way of putting it. Um, he always did combine those two strains. Uh, I mean, people compared him to Blair, always thought it made so much more sense to compare him to Berlusconi, uh, because Berlusconi was one of the first figures, I think, who incarnated this combination. So he was, you know, his personal relationship with the Italian people, his charisma, but he also brought this managerialism to Italian politics. He was the CEO. He was the, the guy who would get things done. He would fix problems. And Berlusconi, I think, is really the sort of the figure that we can think of Renzi as being the, the legacy of Berlusconi. And what's interesting about Renzi is that his programme for Italy 
was a sort of a four-point program, none of which was in substantive ideological terms anything very interesting. You know, one was about reforming the labour market, which was probably the most important thing. One was the electoral law. The other one was constitutional reform. You know, his his promise originally for constitutional reform was to abolish the Senate, which he was never able to, to do. But if you think of those are the things that he staked his political you know, reputation on, they are pretty technical things. Yeah, it's not rabble-rousing it's politics. Absolutely it? not. Um, but on the other hand... This is the guy doing high fives, you know, on a talent show. I mean, this is the really the kind of the, the populist, but the substance of his politics is generally quite technocratic. Unless we forget Blair and Berlusconi did used to go on holiday together. I just want to add something in, though, which I think that is important about Italian politics and what's happened. This is, a, is I think, a crisis of Italian democratic politics in a way in which or it is the culmination of a crisis in democratic politics, which I don't think has been going on in the other countries that we've been talking about, because Italy has now been through another prime minister and will now have a, a fifth prime minister in a row who has not been brought to power by the circumstances of a general election. The last prime minister that Italy had who was brought to power by a general election was Berlusconi. Everybody since has been either technocratically appointed like Monti was, effectively came to power in a party coup like Renzi himself, and... What we can see in Italy is is from that moment that effectively Angela Merkel and the ECB and the Italian president mobilised together to push Berlusconi out of power because he was not willing to pass the pension reform that the ECB demanded in exchange for the ECB supporting Italian bonds in the, um, the bond market. That Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There has been a fundamental absence of democratic politics in some sense in Italy. And one of the things that Renzi wanted to do in this constitutional reform was to essentially to make the Italian Senate unelected, to have the people who were there predominantly be made as appointments from the regional legislatures. And so I think that it's quite difficult to see the revolt against Renzi as something that exists independently from the fact that Italian politics has been in a crisis when it comes to its democratic political arrangements. It does not seem to be able to produce a democratically elected government that could then engage with Italy's economic problems. And Renzi was a manifestation of that. And he's now going to, as a result of his crisis, bequeath the same problem to a successor. And there is a fear of the next election, right? I mean, that that's the establishment will do what it can to delay that moment. I think so. I mean, the irony, I suppose, is that if Renzi's, you know, this is what they call the Italicum, the the electoral law, if it goes through, if the constitutional court um, says that it's not anti-constitutional at the end of January next year, and if there were to then be early elections, the main beneficiaries would be precisely the parties and the movements that Renzi would be opposed to something like the Five Star Movement. But there is also quite a tradition, I think, within Italian politics of appointing, you know, governments or appointing prime ministers. The role of the president is not particularly important apart from the moment where somebody stands down. Which does happen quite often. Which does happen quite often. Um, Helen's quite right. 
there's become a pattern now of replacing prime ministers with somebody who doesn't fight an election and win an election. I think that does explain also why Renzi felt the need to to go to a referendum or felt that it would, it would help him because it would establish his credentials as somebody who did command popular will, which was always a question uh, about Renzi. But on the other hand, I mean, Italian politics is also quite an interesting measure of what's happening today. I mean, the Five Star Movement has emerged as a massive national movement made up of basically ordinary people with no political experience or credentials whatsoever, who are now plausibly one of the main political players in the country. So there is a sense of renewal, you know, even though it's not being reflected in who sits in parliament or who runs the country, there's a sense of renewal at the, at, at the, at the level of the population, uh, which is, you know, which is interesting. And it's a democracy, they cannot put off an election forever, and we will discover how far that renewal goes. Just to broaden this out a bit, so Salvini, the leader of the Northern League, He tweeted after the result this tweet, which has been widely circulated, and it more or less goes, Viva Le Pen, Viva Trump, Viva Putin. So can someone explain the Viva Putin bit to me? Because I've been puzzled by this for a while. I, I get why authoritarian politicians want to align themselves with Vladimir Putin. But why in Europe is Putinism electorally popular? I mean, why do the people like it? I think that there's different sources of it from different parts of the political spectrum in Western Europe. So I think that there is maybe a left pro-Putinism that is sort of a continuity from a part of the left that has always had very you know, affectionate feelings towards Russia that goes back many, many years um, and has nothing particular to do with Putin, I don't think. I think that there is a certain amount of mass fatigue with the post-World War II liberal order and all of its forms and to the extent that some of what Putin is saying towards Eastern Europe and against sort of EU expansion and the expansion of NATO and sort of the West's push into what used to be Russia's sphere fits in with people who are very dissatisfied with the way that liberal order is functioning for them. I think maybe some of the sympathy comes from that. And that I think is a different group of people who don't have that historic left relationship. And it's not really about Putin. It's about the way in which the institutions that Putin is railing against are functioning for Western Europeans. And it just kind of dives, I guess, with what they're they're experiencing already. And is some of it just straight the appeal of the strong man? I'm not sure about that. It may be. But I think that there's another aspect to it. And that is, is that it's hard to say that Putin has an ideology. But to the extent that there is anything that could be called an ideological worldview. It seems to be driven by a clash of civilizations view of the world. And I think that various of the populist parties, particularly the Northern League in Italy, the Freedom Party in Austria, and the National Front in France, and to some extent UKIP, but I think it's less significant than the um, others, do take a, a more clash of civilizations view of the world. And I think the thing that they tend to like Putin for is, is that they think that he's much stronger standing up against radical Islam than Western governments um, have been. And all of those parties are very strongly against Islamic immigration into Europe. And it's what distinguishes the Five Star Movement, which doesn't take a position on this as far as I can see, from the Northern League. So I think that somebody who is seen to be standing up, to use this language, against what is taken to be the radical Islamic threat in a con- political context in which Western governments are seen as not doing that, I think that that is part of what Putin's appeal is to these parties. I also think it is possible to read too much into a tweet. Um, I can imagine, really? <laughs> I can imagine Salvini sort of, you know, 
jubilant and also just a bit idiotic. You know, the first thing that comes to his Drunk. mind, possibly as well. Um, if that's libelous, I apologise. Uh, so, I mean, <laughs> that doesn't work because it? it plays into it, it plays into this um, this kind of criticism of these far right parties, which you get in France particularly, which is that they're basically financed by Russian money, and the Front National has sort of had its finances studied by various people, and there've been these accusations that it's all kind of Russian money. And I've I've always been a bit you know suspicious it seems to be a sort of an attempt to tar these parties with the Putin brush maybe Salvini was sort of unconsciously you know reproducing that in a slightly silly way I don't know maybe there's something more to it but I think there's also the chance that he was just being a bit stupid the other possibility there's another old clash of civilizations issue at stake here which is European anti-Americanism I mean I again this is just my sense of it but I'd always assumed part of Putin's appeal for many Europeans was that he was the enemy of the United States and the United States enemy might be for some people their friend. But that's very complicated now because Putin now has a friend in the White House. So Maha, is that, I mean, is, is that plausible that some of what was driving Putin's appeal in Europe was anti-Americanism and that might be actually going to become more problematic. So if people were, for instance, voting for Le Pen, partly to express that, they've got a difficult choice now because they're also propping up the man in the White House. I think so. And I think the rubber meets the road here if Trump follows through on the stuff he's been saying about NATO. Um, that you know, for the longest time, it has been the case that although all of the NATO member states have some commitment to spend a certain amount of their GDP on defense, um, you know, the US spends many, many times that number. Britain just about makes the threshold and everybody else is way below what they've committed to do so that NATO is effectively sustained by American military expenditure. And Trump has is the first person seriously at the presidential level to say, we're calling that card. And we will withdraw our spending, we expect everybody to catch up. And I think that's the point at which a lot of the people who I think, and this is mostly, I think, on the left of European politics, for whom pro-Putinism is conflated with anti-Americanism, are going to have to think very hard about what it actually means if the American security umbrella is withdrawn. I would say I always associated you know, European anti-Americanism as being on the left. Certainly in France, the, the strain of anti-Americanism was far more present within the French left than it was in the French right, which is why it's curious. I'm not sure how, certainly for the, the voters of the Front National, whether it plays much of a role. I think insofar as it's more of the left than the right, I think it raises a, even more the question of well, where does the pro-Putinism come from if it's not sustained by a traditional anti-Americanism which in a lot of European countries tended to be more on the left than on the right. I think, though, we've got to put this in a, in a slightly wider context, and that is that the policies of Western European governments towards Russia in relation to the Atlantic relationship have really changed quite significantly over the last two years, particularly um, in relation to the sanctions that have been put on Russia since Russia's annexation of Crimea in 2014. If you look at a series of events prior to that, when the American government, going back to the early 80s for that matter, when it was still the Soviet Union, when the American government wanted to take sanctions against either the Soviet Union or Russia over a number of issues, then European governments didn't tend to support them. There was a huge row in the early 80s within NATO about the sanctions that the Reagan administration wanted against Russia's actions in Poland in relation to a 
a gas pipeline that the European governments, including the British government, actually were adamantly unwilling to support and various European companies were actually themselves put under sanctions by the American government as a consequence of that. Even if you go back to 2008, you have a situation in which the French and German governments, but supported by the British government to all intents and purposes, effectively vetoed the membership of NATO for Georgia and Ukraine. It's actually very striking that the Americans have been able to hold together the European governments, I think, in a sanctions regime against Russia over since 2014. Though, interestingly, Renzi was a person who actually opposed the extension of further sanctions over Syria just earlier um, this year. So actually what you've got is the West European governments have actually taken a position that's much closer to America over Russia than their predecessors had since going back to the 1980s. So they've in some sense left a vacuum in which these other parties can move in and develop a critique of the position that their governments are taking over the US-Russia confrontation. So it does potentially fit into this great revolt narrative, which is if the governments are doing it, we're on the other side for some of these I think alternative so. yeah, parties. Absolutely, yes. Particularly, in, as Chris said, in a country like France, which had got a long history, um, particularly on the right, but not exclusively on the right, of wanting some kind of middle position between the United States and Russia. The position that Hollande's been offensively taking since 2014, not absolutely consistently, and he's had moments when he seems to be willing to think about reversing, but he hasn't actually, is is that he has left a huge space for the opposition in France to, to, to critique. And of course, the two likely candidates for the French presidency are both, broadly speaking, going to be pro-Russian candidates. I mean, that, that Fillon and Le Pen, in their different ways, are on Putin's side. Marine Le Pen, possibly more. François Fillon, I, I don't know... Um, whether we'd qualify him as a pro sort of Russian person. I mean, so how he's characterised in some of the profiles I've read. He is certainly characterised that way. I think he's a Gaulist candidate, essentially, in the old sense of what that would have meant. And that is, is that he is not going to attack Russia simply because it's what an American administration wants to do. And he's going to be rather critical about the stance that America takes. Maybe actually he will be less critical than the stance that Trump takes over the stance the Obama administration um, takes. But I, I think that he's not new. He's just in, he's just kind of reverting back to what has been more the norm in French politics. But when, when he was prime minister, foreign policy was overwhelmingly dominated by the president. So I think it's not, at least I don't feel like I really know what he thinks about a lot of foreign affairs issues. It'll, it'll come out now in the next few months, I think, we'll have to take positions on things. And finally, Austria, because that was for the people who were worried that the Great Revolt is about to sweep everything away, held up by some people as good news for a couple of hours before Renzi lost, that the Freedom Party candidate, who had effectively tied the previous round, was defeated. It was about a 5% margin, I think. So we're not talking about a massive swim, but clearly a number of wavering people in the middle decided they didn't want to go down that route. It's a broadly ceremonial position, but clearly it was very symbolically important. Is there any sense that it does reflect the possibility that we've overstated the populist revolt and that it's going to be much more varied than we think. It's not just a wave. Some of some of the beating back has already started. Well, there was a huge amount of relief. Um, the newspaper headlines that had been published before the Italian results came out all said something along the lines of, thank goodness, you know, Austria's gone the other way. I think we have to just put it 
very simply in perspective, which is that the striking fact about the presidential elections in Austria is that neither of the candidates were drawn from the two, what had for so long been the two main parties. I mean, the Austrian political system in the post-war era has been divided up uh, in this amazingly stable division of labour between the centre-left and the centre-right parties, who've always traditionally alternated in fulfilling this role and having a candidate take this role. Whereas in this case... The Green Party candidate wasn't even, he was backed by the Green Party, but he ran as an independent. And then you have Hoffer uh, for the FPO. Um, these are two figures quite outside of the political mainstream. So I think it didn't really matter whether it was uh, van der Bellen or whether it was Hoffer that won. Both represented the collapse of this traditional monopoly on political power by the two mainstream parties in Austria. We're going to, over the next few weeks, be reflecting back on this incredible year which hasn't finished yet. There's presumably something's going to happen between now and Christmas, which will mean we'll have to talk about something unexpected, but maybe it'll all go on hold for a while. But we want to just try and draw some of these threads together. It's so hard to make sense of this. We're in the middle of momentous political times. Next year potentially is going to be even more dramatic because we have these elections across Europe. And it's, it's hard sometimes to remember this, but Trump isn't president yet. I was reading a thing this morning about how one of the many forms of protocol that he's breached is that he's behaving as though he were president. And I thought, oh, yeah, Obama's still president. It's not Trump, but every focus is on Trump's latest tweet. So next year, we will have a Trump presidency. We will have elections, possibly in Italy, certainly in France, certainly in the Netherlands, certainly in Germany. So we'll be looking ahead to that, too. In a couple of weeks, we're going to be joining forces with the New Statesman podcast. And we'll be talking to them about how they've seen the year. And they'll be talking to us likewise. Do join us for that. Do please, as always, subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at tppodcast underscore. Thank you for listening. My name is David Runsterman, and we've been Talking Politics. Mm-hmm.